books as opposed to which books were bad books. They, they were close enough, tight enough, but as they spread away and didn't see each other, and time went along and new doctrinal eras came, like this Gnosticism thing got bigger and this modalism and some of these others that I've been discussing here, it became more and more difficult for the average person to, to know just which to believe. And then you have these big united voices, these bigger churches getting bigger and having greater influence and having these big movements going on toward this one church idea with its head in Rome and its authority mainly in Rome and what the Bishop of Rome says. Uh, that, that means that there's this, how could all these big important people be wrong and our little local church over here be right? I think you can look around and see how it's easy. I mean, look at our church here. We have 100 people or 90 to 100 people here on an average Sunday at the current time. How could we, how could we be true in doctrine and maybe a church that runs 1,000 or two or 24, uh, three, 4,000, why aren't they better than I mean, They surely know more than we know. They've been successful. They've gotten there. These preachers have all been to big seminaries, and they surely they know more than they, that same kind of dynamic went on in those days. And even in, in the, some of the churches that were bigger and departing, they realized we need to standardize this thing. We need to decide what we're going to believe, which books are really these from God, which ones are not. We need to come, come to a consensus, an agreement in this area. So let's talk a moment about the canon itself, and let me go back over the definition, understand the word. We use the word to communicate the idea that along with the Old Testament, we accept 27 and only 27, because that's under controversy, books of the New Testament to be divinely inspired. Doesn't matter how many other out there that claim there are, they are inspired. We believe there are only 27 inspired books, and they're ones we have in our New Testament. We do not believe in the Apocrypha, or there are 14 of those books. Some groups, Catholics, believe, for example, the Apocrypha is true, too. We don't believe in catechism. It's not the same level of Scripture. Only the Scriptures, only these 27, these books. The word canon comes from the Greek word K-A-N-O-N, and it's used metaphorically in reference to a measure, a norm, or a standard. Standard, um, really, sort of the idea grew out of the papyrus plants that grow along the Nile River. They're kind of like a celery plant. You know, they grow up and have a stalk here, and then they sprout out and have a stalk. And, and the, the papyrus plant, a stalk, straight with no leaves, no sprouts, would generally be considered a canon. I mean, in the way back, I mean, just looking at etymology where this idea, they looked at it as a canon because they could cut that off here, beat it out, and make a sheet of paper out of that piece of stalk. <coughs> beat it on a rock, that's how they did it, and put one across another, two of them, and it'd make a good writing paper that last several thousand years. So a canon, it's the idea of a standard measurement, a standard rule. The apostle Paul referred to, to the word, or use the word, and it's, it's translated rule in your Bible in Galatians 6 and verse 16. The, uh, the rule of conduct, the rule of practice, so it's our standard, it's our canon. So that's the, how this word uh, came to be. Now, I'll talk a minute about Marcion, and I mentioned him already, and the Gnostics, uh, the her heretical theology of, of Gnosticism emerged and, and it was embraced by a whole lot of Christians. You talk about people that, that fell away. You talk about people that were taken away in, a, in an erroneous direction, in a false please, belief system. Well, the Gnostics had lots of bad influence on the Christian community, and many followed the Gnostic way of thinking. And as I indicated earlier, around 140 A.D., Martian, the charismatic leader of the, of the, of the Gnostics, uh, he set up a, a uh, canon, some books that he said, well, we're going to put an end to this noise of which is right and which is wrong. I'm going to tell you these are the right inspired books. 
So he took just the ones he chose, not all of the ones that he chose. He took out anything, as I said, that supported Judaism or was materialistic in it at all, as he thought. So he was anti-Jewish, and his canon included um, just those that are mentioned. And I don't know that we have a slide on that particular one. I guess we do not. Yeah, there they are, I believe. In front of you. Let me look over here. Yeah, those are the, here's the ones that he included. And they're... As I said, he didn't include all of each of those books. Even in the book that we would, for example, call Luke, he went in and carved out anything that he thought was contrary to Gnosticism ideas. And he did that with everyone. And you can see all except, I guess, Luke here. These are the Pauline epistles. And he, again, took out Judas, uh, Judas, or Jewish ideas. And in light of Marcion's bold initiative and announcement in the canon, <clears throat> well, the rest of the Christian community said, hey, he's stealing people. He's confusing people. We've got to, he says this is, this is not the canon. These are not the only books. And they're not the right books. And he didn't use them in the right way. He took out what he shouldn't have. We've got to go on record here and now and say, here's who we really are. Here's the right books. So they're kind of back against the, corner, against the wall and backed into the corner here to do something about it. So the need for a canon, let's talk about this need. Many other factors besides Gnosticism that de determine a need for a canon. One is false doctrine practices within the ranks of Christianity. As you can imagine, from what I've been saying already, this thing's growing. These false doctrines are proliferating. Lots of them. I just touched the uh, tip of the iceberg here so far today. Some of the main ones. Uh, Montanists, they are a group of early believers that we trace our history through the Montanists, one of the very first groups uh, that that you call a group as a whole. Um, well, some of the Montanists uh, thought prophecies were continuing and that they were still getting divine inspiration and therefore there were still prophets on the scene. They didn't believe that when that which is perfect has come, that is completion of the Word of God, 1 Corinthians 13, that which is in part, that is the pieces here and there, would be done away. They didn't see that. So they, they thought, we keep prophesying, but some of the more astute Bible believers believed what Paul said when that was perfect is coming. They saw that the 27 books were there, and they began to realize these new things are not prophecies. They're not, but the Montanists had some members, not all, in their group that believed in the continuing of prophecy. Also, persecution and martyrdom. I really spent time last night, maybe even too much time talking about that. But during the hundreds of years of great persecution, Roman authorities demanded Christians surrender their writings. While people were being beaten and, and uh, the Colosseum was flourishing with people being gored up by lions or eaten by dogs or gored by bulls and all that bad stuff was going on in the Colosseum in Rome, but in lesser Colosseums like the one in Ephesus and around the Roman Empire, it was going on in neighborhoods. Pliny up there in Bithynia, it's a upper part of Turkey over close to the, uh, the Caspian Sea. He's, he's killing Polycarp up there, you know, burning him to death in that macabre way that he did it. And so this is going on, but one of the other things that the Romans are doing when they're trying to purge the Christian, get rid of it really, they're going into homes and into churches and they're getting... They're confiscating all of their divine writings. You know, if they've got a copy of Philippians, handwritten copy, or a copy of a copy of handwritten, the Romans are looking for all of this, this uh, material that is driving this Christian community. They want to make sure the kids don't get hold of it and get infected with it. Or anybody. So they're, they're burning books and parchments and scrolls, not books like we think of this book here, but but the materials that they had written, they're, they're burning it. If you have some copies in your home, let's just put it on a real today society book. Look, say you have, uh, you have some guns in your gun safe at home, some handguns and long guns. And the police of the city of Houston show up at your door. Maybe they got the DPS, Department of Public Safety, the state troopers. Maybe they even got some militiamen, some, some National Guard guys. 
and they want to get your guns and do away with your guns. You got to decide which ones you're willing to keep. Not going to be an easy decision. It's even more so when these Roman authorities are at your door saying, bring out all of your religious writings, everything. You got to decide which ones you're going to keep, which ones are really scripture. You're not going to, you're not going to keep a, a, a copy of something you don't believe is divine. You may even give them some of your divine writings, a whole bunch of them did. But you're only going to defend the ones and risk your life to save the ones that you really believe are, are, are inspired of God. So this is a factor. Constantine's call also in 323 and thereafter for multiple copies of Scripture. Once, once Constantine supposedly converted to Christianity, he began to, he said, hey, if, if Christianity is a, the, the state religion here and I'm the head and the boss of it, then I'm going to use it as a tool to unify my, my Roman society back to where it ought to be. Then he, he said, we need copies of these Christian writings. Whereas just before him, they had been trying to get rid of all the copies. Here and all of a sudden it's a flip-flop and a reversal. He's saying, write them down. So what happens then is people begin to say, I'll make copies, but I want to make copies of scriptures, not of spurious books. You know, if you're going to, you have to have so much trouble getting something to write on, a papyrus or a skin, you gotta, you, you're not going to waste your paper writing down a funny book <laughs> or something. You're going to make sure. So these are purging. These are things that are driving the need for a standard that can be recognized uh, canon. <clears throat> Certainly the need, that authoritative standard was there. And then the passing of time. You can see how the passing of time. I mean, John writes the, the Revelation in 95. Here's James's way earlier, one of the first books in the 40s. And you got Philippians and 2 Corinthians and Galatians and Acts and all these books coming along from about 40 to about 95, somewhere in that bracket of time, roughly. And so you were living then. You saw it happening. You were hearing it in your neighborhood where you live. This is, this is, these are the real because these were the apostles. They were writing these books down. But then you get old and you die and your kids are left, but they didn't see it. They didn't have quite the conviction that you had. And then your kids have kids or your grandkids and they're not quite as interested in what's right and wrong as you were interested in what's right and wrong. So just the, just the passing of time is demanding we need more than word of mouth stuff. We need an authoritative decision on what's real and what we can believe, our, our doctrines, our documents. Also the process of canonization, let me talk about it a bit. First, certain documents of the New Testament were collected locally, and they were quoted in, uh, in works of theology uh, without giving very much thought to their genuineness. They were just sort of recognized as I mean, even these guys that I talked about, like Arrhenius and, and Cyprian and some of those who were doing these writings, they're just referring to the material that they know is in the community, and they're talking about it. They, you can read them. I've got, I think it's in, in the... There's books to you, brother, there in the writings of the church fathers that's over in this church office. I mean, like 15 volumes, big, thick stuff like here. You can read what they said. Just go in and read. And they're talking about the book of James, or they're talking about the book of, of Matthew, and they're quoting sections from there. So that's going on. That's how it's going at first. And then, second, in response to Marcion and the spurious Gnostic text, Christian leaders begin to investigate the canon. And to, and to publish genuine uh, books, legitimate books, true, true scripture books, make copies of Mark and make copies of uh, Acts and of Romans and these other books. It was not a popular thing to do because remember the persecution was rising and you make copies of those, they may knock on your door and demand that you burn them all or they'll take them from you and burn them right out there in front of you. So they're, they're getting there. But it, nevertheless, there's a driver here among the Christian community to write these things down. 
that we, we don't forget, and our kids can have them, and our grandkids can have them in their own, own for perpetuity. Finally, church councils met to validate genuine books and expose those that were spurious. They didn't decide. They didn't come in with a big argument. They just come in to say, we all know these are the right ones, and we all know these are not the right ones, so these are the ones we declare to be the right ones. That happened in some of these, like we call fellowship meetings, or they call them synodes, or conferences, or councils. That was going on. The basis, how would you know? How would you, you just put yourself back there. How would you go about deciding which one was true? Would you just say, well, mama said it was. Dad said it was. Well, my preacher says so. What objective standard could you apply to any writing that came, the Shepherd of Hermes, uh, Gospel according to Thomas, Matthew, Written by the apostles. Number one, had to be written by an apostle or someone immediately in proximity with, at fellowship with, and knew the apostle. For example, a Luke was not an apostle, but he was right there with Paul all along the way, a lot of times together, most time together, sometimes a little separation, but most time together. Well, Luke was right on the scene. He was close to Paul. His writings of Luke and Acts stuck. Mark, Mark's not an apostle, but he was right there with Peter, and Paul knew him. In fact, Paul for a while said, don't, he may not go with us. And then later he said, he's good for us in the last book Paul wrote, Second Timothy. But, but he's, you can see either the apostles or somebody very close to the apostles. That was number one. That's the first consideration, the first objective standard to be applied to any kind of writing. Number two, in response to Mars, or excuse me, no, apostolic authority. And then number number two here, conformity to what's called the rule of, of faith. Uh, any book that failed to meet the common standards of faith and practice was not accepted in Scripture. And that has to do somewhat, at least, with internal configuration of a book or internal information. For example, if a book contradicts its own self, it's not true. It's not inspired of God because all the books of the Bible, according to the promise of Jesus, I will guide you into all truth, a promise of infallibility. So everybody knows that two contradictories cannot both be true. So if a writer's going along over here and he contradicts himself over here, throw that one out. It's not a scripture. We won't consider that for this canon, this rule, this standard that we're putting together here. Not only internal, but agreement with all the others. If we're going to have 25 or 27 books in here. All of these 27 books have to agree with each other. Not just internally within a book, but with all the others. Nothing James says can contradict what Paul said or vice versa. By the way, there are a lot of people who think James and Paul contradict each other, particularly on the matter of justification by works versus justification by faith. But there is no contradiction. But they think so. But at any rate, that could not happen. Furthermore, not only does each book have to agree internally and with all the other books of the New Testament, but it has to agree with all the books of the Old Testament. So you're putting together here something that has to have what would be called the conformity to the rule of faith. And then the final or third thing that they really looked at, it's a lesser one, but it still counted, was widespread and continuous acceptance and usage in churches. And that diminished over time as these various churches, these churches drifted further and further away then uh, they accepted stuff that wasn't true. But those legitimate churches, well, they certainly agreed. And even some to that degree, these uh, bigger churches, they, they still were pretty good when it came to what was Scripture at that particular point. They were in pretty well agreement. So when the canon was eventually closed, it included 27 books that make up our English New Testament there are, as I've indicated, far more books out there than just these 27, and many Christians were led astray by these spurious books, just like they are today. Gosh, I can't get over these thoughts in my head. It make me want to write, but I want to write a, a book entitled probably there, Stealing Our Children, and deal with the very idea of undermining when kids go out of high school, especially out of high school, and get into college, university system somewhere, particularly if they want to take a course in religion maybe an elective course in religion, take a course, Introduction to Biblical Christianity, 
and they get told right in there, right off the front end, that there were a lot of other books and the Christian community just didn't do a very good job. They deny everything I'm saying right here and undermine these kids that never heard anything in their Sunday school or from their preacher, from anybody, saying this is how they're going to attack you. They're going to say that, that what, 9 or 11, I think it is, of the 27 books of the New Testament are forgeries. They're going to tell that in a college like Texas University to your kid by a Ph.D., and your kid's going to come home and say, Mom and Dad, you didn't tell me that. I've learned you, these are forgeries. I, I, that I'm, I'm post-holding here, but I'm thinking too. I've I got to write this book. Ask God to give me a little time. Um, as long as the list was closing the canon, let's talk about that here. Um, it is obvious that with the passing of time, consensus was growing that the Christian community um, needed to know which books were, can, uh, were canon books. As long as the list was open, there were individual books of Scripture, but there was not yet this authoritative collection, this canon as we're calling it here. And the collection of New Testament books took place gradually over a period of time. It isn't just like one day they just did it. One day they came together and they declared what was already developed over this long period of time. These, this drift had been happening and people been thinking about it and, and coming up. And so they just decided, hey, at this meeting we're going we're gonna to declare this, put it down, make it official in writing. Christian leaders included the New Testament books in the canon because they were largely or already regarded as divinely inspired. I want to say that because, boy, oh boy, you would listen to the modern scholars and they would say, well, these men at this council of Chalcedon, they just got over there and they just decided these are the ones we like and we don't like those. They didn't do that. They, got, they came in there with the idea these are the ones that everybody's known for a long time were the right ones and all we're going to do is say we agree with that. This is, let's put this, this argument to, to bed. These are the only ones. So it was not just some wild move. Uh, the Christian community, especially the Orthodox, the real Bible Christian community, they knew which ones were and had for a long, long time. And it's amazing to me they'd been able to do as good a job as they had as long as they had from one generation to the next generation to come down to that point to declare the right books in the New Testament. They recognized their innate worth and general apostolic authority, uh, direct or indirect, as in the case of Luke and those guys. The great debate was finally put to rest at this one particular meeting they had. It was Augustine, and please do not mention Dink because I use Augustine in these notes or in this book that <laughs> I'm a fan of Augustine because I am definitely not. He was a rascal. It was Augustine, though, who in three provincial synods, which is these meetings, these uh, getting-togethers as they had, cast his weight for the 27 books that now known as the Christian scriptures, the ones that we call the New Testament. We're going to change gears here for just a bit and not really go in a different direction, but we're going to lay some more groundwork because you can see in view of what I've been explaining that we're now moving forward to a solidification of this power. We have a standard now, a canon by which we can measure, but now we're looking at a power broker move that's, a, that's been in the making for a long time. The big church getting bigger, becoming one church, in their minds, and this one church then becoming to control what's called Christianity. This is where they're headed. And the thing that facilitated it the most was what I call the big wedding. Pagan Rome did its best to eradicate Christianity, but it failed. Miserably, it failed. As bystanders saw Christians dying for their faith, many were convicted. I have to insert this because it's so precious to me personally. The big Colosseum in Rome. If you've been to Rome, you've we've been there and seen it. It's kind of a ruins, but they keep it up. You can see it in a big circle, and you can see the sand out there and see where the animals were kept down here, and the gladiators, the Christians mainly, were kept, and they were brought out in here and turned the lines of the dogs, the bulls, or tigers loose on them and let them gore them to death out here while the Romans sat around like Sunday afternoon football. And they said, hey, broken knee today. Isn't that great? Just bit his head off. There were people sitting in those bleachers watching this stuff go on. And while they did it in front of the emperor and his group, he's, there were people out here saying, 
these people are dying for a cause. Something's driving them. You wouldn't go down there. You wouldn't be down there if you didn't have some real convictions. These are not preferences these people are dying for. These are convictions. They stand on something. I'm here. What do I believe? What would cause me to stand up? They got under conviction. They sought out other Christians. And as Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is a seed of Christianity. I mean, they kill one here and there's many would believe. And Christianity, in spite of the Colosseum, in spite of all the persecutions, Decius and all that he was doing, in spite of every bit of that, Christianity is flourishing in the Roman Empire. This illicito uh, religio illicita, illegal religion, they've tried to stamp out one generation, one section of, of, of emperors after another, and they miserably failed, and they knew they'd miserably failed. And Constantine, who's a general, comes along and he says, and I'm putting this in these texts, if you can't lick them, you ought to join them. We can't lick them. We can't whip them. Let's make them work for us. Let's unite the church, this thing that's standing and growing and we, these people will die for in this policy. Let's harness it. Let's, let's marry the church to the state. The state will be in charge. We'll govern the church. I'm the emperor. I'll be in charge of the church because I'm in charge of the state. And we will make everybody now become a part of Christianity. So we have one state church, one big religious organization, and we'll have the force of the church and all of its doctrine and the government with its military power and police authorities behind it. We're going to make it stick up. When the persecution stopped in that pagan Rome era, the Christians were like, Thank God he's given us relief. It's persecution for our Christians is over. But what's happened is just a lull in the storm. The big storm's just about to start. Because the state, not only Constantine, but Constantine's followers, those guys made war on everybody who was not a Christian. You got these big churches that have exercised lots of power, especially the one in Rome. You can just see it. Here's the emperor in Rome. Constantine's living in Rome. Here's the, here's the bishop, the pastor of the church in Rome. Constantine's talking to him. They got ear to ear. They don't have phones. They just meet. He tells him this and that. And Constantine assumes when I tell the pastor of the church here what I want the Christians to do, that's the whole church being told. He'll get the word out to everybody. I tell him. So, boy, here it is. The pastor is being told by the by the council by the the uh, emperor what to do, how to run your business, and, and, and control. And so it's like it's this great. But he's expecting Constantine is expecting all of the Christians. I use that loosely to line up and become part of this. This marriage a part of this state church. But what about these first century Christians back here who've been along all, all the way, who've not embraced these doctrinal changes, who are still orthodox according to the Bible, still believe the Bible, and it's their rule and manual practice, who will not worship the emperor, who will not bow down to it, who believe it's a state should never tell the church what to do, they should be separate, each church should be autonomous, and they've stood for that stuff. They're still standing for that stuff. And Constantine looks around, and his followers especially, and they say, they're not going to put up with this stuff. You're going to join us, or we're going to kill you. You say, that's pretty extreme. That's not as extreme as it really was. They did kill him. Bunches and millions of them, really. And they killed them in terrible, terrible ways. And it proceeded to continue for at least a thousand years. One thousand years. That's a, that's a millennium. That's twice as long as the United States has been alive, existed. This is the way it went. It was awful. Christians suffered more in this period of time. But it started with Constantine. 
He was an illegitimate son of a pagan military leader whose name was Constantius, and of his wife, this uh, leader, Constantius, his wife was named Helena, uh, the mother of Constantine, and she'd had an affair apparently somehow with this guy, and nevertheless had Constantine. Constantine and Maximinus were the two main Western powers, and there was a third one that we'll get to in a minute, but they were the two main Western powers, not the Eastern so much, but the Western power of the Roman Empire, and a showdown between Constantine and between uh, uh, Maximinus was just imminent. So Constantine decided he was going to take out Maximinus and become the sole authority in the West of the Roman Empire. So he crossed the Alps, and there's a map here that will show you that, with his army, and he marched down from where the snow cap, you can see the Alps are up there, down through the Italian leg and boot down there, and he came down to where Rome is, and you can see Rome in the, in the graphic about the middle of the leg. He marched down there, and nobody had ever yet been able to conquer Rome per se. Uh, but remember, some things had been happening. I told you last night about these, these guys that were uh, developing to the west, I mean to the, to the north, the Germanic tribes, and we'll get back to them in a bit. But nevertheless, Constantine, who had now uh, become major leader, um, I'm going to tell you this, it's in your notes, before the famous battle of the Milvan Bridge, there's a bridge coming into Rome as sort of a defense line. I've seen that bridge. You've been to Rome, you no doubt want to see that place for sure if you know the Bible and are interested in history like this. Uh, well, it, um, this, uh, before this famous battle of the Milvan Bridge, uh, it seemed that Constantine's enemies were about to overwhelm him. He was going to lose. In other words, uh, Maximinus was going to conquer him instead of him conquering Maximinus. And it is, he claimed, Constantine claimed he had a vision just before the battle, and that in his vision he saw this, a vision of a cross in the sky and heard a voice saying, in this sign conquer. And the sign was the chi in the row in the Greek alphabet, his soldiers placed the chi, the row, which is what we would call a P, capital P with a little X. They put that on the emblem on their, their uh, uh, shields, wore it around kind of like, you know, as, a, as an emblem. And they went forth as a so-called Christian army. <laughs> now here's Constantine, <laughs> just one of those emperors. He doesn't, he doesn't have any knowledge at all hardly about Jesus Christ, but now he's, because he's put the sign, the, the, the Giro on his shield and his men have it, it's a Christian army. Constantine won. It was a miraculous thing, really. He won. But he won the Battle of Melbourne Bridge, and he, he took over complete control of the western part of Rome, and he proclaimed Christianity to be his faith. Now, there's no testimony like uh, uh, Trippo and him telling uh, Justin Martyr about how he got saved. You read all you can about Constantine, and you won't ever find where he came to grips with, grips with the fact that he was lost in the center, and Jesus Christ is the Savior, and he trusted Christ as his own personal Savior. There's no indication of that. He just said, I need Christianity because I want to unite this nation and I need their power. And so he declares himself a Christian. And now he's a Christian. And he's got a Christian army because he declares he's got a Christian army. Now he's a Christian Rome. Well, you see that on the map. Constantine and Lucinus, uh, they met at the, at, in a, later in 313. Uh, and Lucinus, by the way, is the other guy on the east side who's still in got a power in Rome, in the Roman Empire. It's sort of divided, but now Constantine has taken out Maximinus. He's the Western power. He got this Eastern power to deal with. So in 313, Constantine and Lucinus met in, in, in Milan, Italy, and signed a document granting freedom of religion to all. And this is called the famous Edict of Milan. Milano, in, by the way, it's a beautiful part of Italy. If you ever get up there, it'd be good to just go to Milano. If you want to see some beautiful country, it is probably about as good as you'll ever see. So you see that on, on the map that's up there in front of you now. Let me talk about the marriage of this church and state, the big wedding as I call it. In 323, Constantine 
eventually came to that showdown with Licinius. And Constantine won again. Thus, he became the sole ruler, Constantine did, of the Roman Empire, and he promptly made Christianity the preferred or the religion of, of the Roman Empire. In what is called Caesar Opiphacy, that is, state rule of the church, now the church is going to be run by the state, Constantine placed himself over the church but refused to submit or to um, subject himself to the church. He said, now I've made the church this, uh, part of the state. I've given it state authority and state backing, but it's not going to be the preacher who's in charge. It's going to be the me. <laughs> I'm the hipper around here. You're going to do what I tell you to do, and the church, I'm going to run the church, and I'm going to do it through the preacher, through the, who's the bishop here of this big church in Rome, the capital city. They're right there together, and he can, he can do it, as I've indicated a while ago. In the days before 323, Pagan Rome persecuted all of Christianity, but I will tell you from 323 forward, which is called Christian Rome, and I use that again with quotes, Rome persecuted two Christians in the name of Christianity. So let's talk a minute about the Council of Nicaea. I've mentioned that, 325 is the year, you have it on the graphic in front of you. Council of Nicaea. It, it, Constantine now invites all the preachers. Remember in 323 he's declared Christianity to be the state religion. Now he's going to get all the preachers together, the heads of the churches as he called them, these, whoever they are. Keep in mind that not every one of the preachers came. A bunch of them didn't. These, uh, these who embraced true Christianity in the New Testament type Christianity, the Christianity of the Christ and the Apostles. Uh, most of them, or at least a lot of them, uh, did not, certainly none of them embraced state religion, and most of them didn't line up to go with Constantine to the Council of Nicaea. So Constantine called this council of pastors and church leaders, and his main reason was to ad address a doctrinal schism or issue or divide within the ranks of Christianity. As a whole, the council met in Nicaea in the early part or the summer of 325 A.D. Many things were agreed, just for your, I guess, enjoyment here, if nothing more, I will tell you that this is the time they determined on when Easter would occur, the first full, first Sunday after the first full moon after the vernal equinox. So that's how we end up having a rotating Easter. It's not on the same day every year, it just depends on, on the, the equinox. And so this was happened. This, this was declared at that particular time, and, and they agreed on a number of other things, including the Trinity and the deity of Christ. Even though a bunch of them had, uh, had really gone a long way in doctrine, they still could agree on the Trinity. They still could agree that Jesus Christ was really God. He was divine and not some other thing. Do not assume that the agreements made at the Council of Nicaea, which is a really big deal in the history of churches, this is a big, big biggie right here. It didn't Chalcedon, it was later. Um, this one and later councils, don't imagine that the agreements that were made at these big meetings, these synods, was accepted by all of the Christians. It was never accepted. Most of what they believed, some of, but not all by sure, of what they declared that these councils was, was not embraced by all the Christians, particularly these first century Christians. Sometimes the state church was right. They got it right. I think they got it right on the Trinity. I think they got it right on the deity of Jesus Christ. But a lot of times they were not right. And so you have to keep what happened at these synodes, these big agreements, take it with a grain of salt and be sure you're a good Berean and look it over before you embrace it. Not everybody, as I've indicated in the notes there, jumped on the bandwagon. Long before the big Roman wedding or of church and state, major tensions were growing within the ranks of Christendom. At some churches, at some churches, the bigger and more prestigious ones moved away from Scripture and apostolic practice, others stayed true. But I have to tell you that the ones that stayed true became more and more the minority and the ones that were moving away became more and more the majority. So this is what was going on. 
Again, understanding orthodoxy. Let's visit that again because it's so critical to what we're doing here. Webster defines orthodoxy as, quote, keeping to the usual and fixed beliefs, customs, and so forth, especially in religion. We know orthodoxy is what the Bible says to be true. That's what we know it is. In the minds of those growing in power and clout, the beliefs and positions taken by the stronger churches became orthodoxy. It's might makes right. If we say it's true, it's true. That's orthodox. It's what we say is true is true. These people no longer did what the scriptures say constitute orthodoxy. Instead, what the church believed and taught constituted orthodoxy, which is sometimes called tradition. Orthodoxy and tradition, church tradition. That church tradition became the orthodox position, in other words. Once this concept was fully in place, the state church determined what was orthodox and what was heretical, who was a heretic and who wasn't, who should die and who should live. Tradition ruled, not the word of God. And I say with a major understatement that Pandora's box was opened right here, buddy. You talk about trouble about to start, it's happening here. This is a groundwork that's going to produce all kinds of evils for a long, long time to come. I want to give you some inescapable truths, some inescapable truths and some ramifications. If you want all this material, a whole lot of stuff out here on the table, here are some inescapable ramifications. Number one, churches that remain true to the core doctrine and practices of Jesus and the apostles have existed continuously from the church in Jerusalem unto the present. They've been along here. These indications that we're going to look even in more detail in a little while say so. So it's not like I'm up here in 2023 and I believe these things and I look at the church in Jerusalem, New Testament, and I see these same things they believed that I believed. But I'm here and they're there. There's no connection. There is a connection. These things that they believe here, they believed here and hereafter and hereafter and so we're going to look at that line as we go here. And it's against all these overwhelming odds. I mean, you would think with a persecution that none of them would survive. And you would think with all these uh, drifts, these big guys getting bigger and more powerful and putting pressure on the little guys, that it just, that the, that the church of, like Jesus built would have gone away. They'd just be eradicated. That is what the intent of their enemies was. The Romans wanted to do it and the Catholics wanted to do it. But the reality is, these churches have remained. Jesus promised the perpetuity of the institution that he personally established in Matthew 16, 18. And so you can look at it and see it's happening. It's beginning to develop. We're going to look at it more. Number two, church legitimacy is not in the name. Legitimacy is in the beliefs and practices of a church. You've got to look at beliefs and practices. Now I have, to, I have to say this. As I said to start this first session today, I looked at me and said, asked myself, who am I? I am what they were. And I am now discovering that there has been a line to hear. They went by some various names. But the practices were what really identified them. But their action, their main practice, identified them most of all from the start. They were baptizers. Baptists. Baptizers, that's what that means. They're baptized. They're Baptists. They baptize. Believers. You look at that. That's where they were. And so these people are doing that. They're believing it in their kids and they're for 2,000 years. And I'm down here. And there's a line that I can trace of people who were called baptizers, Anabaptists, rebaptizers, dropped the Anna, Cathari, Pierce, but the rebab, everybody knew the common thread by name which was not a name, but a practice, but the, the, the practice became the name in a way. It is a, it is a, a trail of blood. Like Jim Carroll says in his little trail of blood book, you can trace it. We've been here. I look at myself down here in 2023. This is who I am. I identify. This is my heritage, my spiritual heritage. 
I'm a Hudson by birth. I'm a believer. And I'm a baptizer by practice. And I'm in that group of believers. I identify as a Baptist. I am a Baptist. It's a long, good heritage. Why on God's green earth would I want to renounce my heritage? Why do I always say, this is no longer Northwest Baptist Church. It's just Northwest Church. This is a church of the woodlands. This is... If you lose your name, you lose your identity. You forget your name, go into a bank and write a check and just write something down. See how much they're going to honor that check. Names are important. You sign your name on a contract that you're going to pay off a house. You sign your name on a marriage license that you're going to live with this woman and marry her and him. Your name means something. I tell you, I traveled around just like most of you and I see Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, or I see Catholic Church, or I see Lutheran Church, and then I see these uh, uh, Ramification Church or Revolution Church or whatever out here. And I have to wonder, what are they? I have no identification. I just see, okay, this is just Church of East Texas, or this is the Woodland Church. How do I know what they believe? How do I have any standard or any way to make up my mind if I have lost their heritage? I don't, I'm, I'm like Brother Jerry Locke in his book. I'm still a Baptist and I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not bad about it either. I'm just glad I am. I'm glad I have a name that's a good name and I know it's been smeared. But I bet you there's not a person in this room and not a person watching this, uh, this tape who doesn't have a few bones in your closet. And I bet you wouldn't have to go back two or three generations to find some of them. Are you going to quit being by your natural name because you've got a dad that was a whoremonger? Or a grandpa? Or because a bunch of your cousins? I'm telling you, I'm hanging on to the name Hudson. It is my heritage. Yes, there are some bones in my closet. I know about them. Not all of them, I'm sure, but I know a bunch of them. I wouldn't dare say, I'm going to go get a name change. In my natural name. I have no reason. I'm not going to throw out the baby because the bathwater's dirty. Why would I do it in a spiritual heritage? Why would I want to turn around and say, well, I know there are a lot of bad Baptists and a lot of people come to church to hear Baptists, therefore I want to give ourselves a, a, a different name that has no bearing, that nobody knows outside just my little group. I just post holes. I just talked about some things we need to think about because they're real in them right in front of us today. You know that? They're all around us. We have to make some decisions who we really are. And I'm telling you, I'm in a line of people, this church is in a line of people that goes way back here to Jesus Christ. And we're going to keep following that line as we move along. That's ramifications. Only those connected to the line of churches which have embraced the teachings and practices of Jesus and his apostles are true legitimate churches. If it is, in fact, to him be glory in the church throughout all ages, as throughout all ages means they've been here through the whole trip. It's only a church today that can connect to back here that is really a legitimate true church. True church. Why do we baptize people who come here from a Methodist church? The Methodist church started in England with John Wesley and Charles Wesley. Their main argument against John Calvin over in Reformed Church was they didn't believe in eternal security. So you got a church that started. We can't accept baptism for church that, that has a John Acumley. How could we accept the baptism of a church of Christ who started with Alexander Campbell, what, in 17, 1800s? 1900s, back there. How could we accept somebody from a Lutheran church who started up here with the Protestant Reformation? It's, it's not hard to see why we have a lineage. We have a heritage. This is who we are. This is our identification. And we identify with Christ. And if we can't identify with Christ, we ought to take our shingle down. Not even be a church. So, the ramification. Those there is no church or group of churches in any age, beginning with the church in Jerusalem to the present, that were always right on everything all the time. You got to look at it. 
I just want you to understand, you're not going to find a perfect church among humans. And that's all churches are among humans. God's ahead, but the rest of us are humans. Every church has some weaknesses. The church in Jerusalem, Israel, had a, a quarrel right away about the Christians and the Hebrews and some jealousy because one side was not getting enough personal uh, welfare attention. And so the church had some baggage to it. Churches, this church has some weaknesses, and so does every church you're ever going to see, the best of them. The seven churches in Asia Minor in Revelation 2 and 3, God said, I have somewhat against thee. He could say that about Northwest Baptist and all of us. It doesn't make us not be a church. You don't have to have everything right, but there's some things you do have to have right, and I've mentioned those some things you do have to have right in the start and two or three times now in these talks that I've been giving you. I'm talking about believing salvation by grace through faith. I'm talking about the local independence of each church. I'm talking about eternal security. I'm talking about those type things. And I have to tell you, I'm not even interested in concerning myself joining up with some group that started here 100 or two or three or 400 years after Christ. I want the one that I'm a part of to trace itself doctrinally and by its practice all the way back to that church in Jesus. Well, there ought to have been a few amens right there. <laughs> I'm preaching now. <laughs> I'm preaching. Well, I'm going to move on because we've got to stop. Multitudes of individuals, churches, and formerly uh, connected to a false church have seen the error of their ways. I'm just simply saying, down through the centuries, there have been people who woke up. They were in a bad situation. They were in a church that was not a legitimate situation, didn't have a proper authority and proper baptism, proper ordination, all that stuff. They woke up, and you know what they did? They went back and got it straight. They went back and got properly baptized. They got into a church that was in the line. They got it straightened out. That's the right thing to do. It's impossible to be neutral on the issue of true, legitimate churches. Well, um, tell you what we're going to do. We're going to take another little break. We'll come back, and I'm going to finish up this chapter and get into the other. Because I've having to miss, I just skipped over enough. But I've also post-hoped because I felt like there's a place I need to stop and make sure you get the main point, not just go through all this information. So take a, take a break for a couple of about five, 10 minutes and come back in and we're going to hit the road running pretty quick. <laughs>